everyone, it's Chloe, and I'm so excited to share something fabulous with you, Vogue's first ever global fashion community, Vogue Club. Our members get to mingle with Vogue editors, yes, including me, and fellow fashion enthusiasts at exclusive events around the world. And that's just the start. Membership opens doors to the fashion industry, bringing you expert career advice and insider style and beauty tips. What are you waiting for? Head over to Vogue.com membership to join. And here's a little treat. Use code TRT20 and snag 20% off your membership. That's TRT20 for 20% off your ticket to Vogue Club. Are you in? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is The Run Through. I'm Chloe Mal. And I'm Cho Minardi. And today on the show, we are talking about... A really incredible new documentary, High and Low, which is on the life and work of John Galliano. More on that later. But first, we are a couple of days out from the end of London Fashion Week. And this year has been a big one. This year is actually the 40th anniversary of London Fashion Week. And I had the chance to talk to two of my colleagues in London, uh, Vogue writers, Alex Kessler and Daniel Rogers. And we had a really good time going over some of the best moments from London Fashion Week. I can't wait to hear 40 thoughts for 40 years. <laughs> we're, we're coming at you with that. <laughs> Hello, Alex and Daniel. We've had you on the show before, but I'd love if you could each introduce yourselves. I'm Alex Kessler, the junior fashion editor at British Vogue. And I'm Daniel Rogers, the fashion writer at British Vogue. How are we feeling post-London Fashion Week? Tired. <laughs> same. <laughs> same. It just, it's, I, I, I'm reminded of just like, how short and sharp and how much fashion we see in the space of basically four days. It was over so quickly. So quickly. What were your favourite shows? Who wants to start? Aaron Esch was fantastic. So cool. Just the girl you want to be. Tell us who Aaron is and how would you describe Aaron's aesthetic in a sentence? So this was Aaron's second runway collection. He Mm. did his first last season um at the tate and that was fab he's a graduate of central saint martins he's probably one of the buzziest names to have come up in a really long time Mm. he's got a real kind of like cult around him of cool young creatives that feels really authentic but also impeccably refined Mm. like what he does is is very very it it it's it's almost couture level in mm. terms of like construction and when you actually speak to him his references are you know it spans across eras but it's also very current at the same time and it feels very london what's the london aesthetic if well, you had to describe what the london aesthetic is because i'm i'm being reintroduced to it which has been nice it's been mm. nice to be immersed in it to see people walking around the shows well i think it's always been just on the right side of indie, right? right. Yeah. It's a little bit rock and roll. Right. It's a bit like a beautiful coat, but worn with a baseball cap mm. and... Skinny jeans. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, we're seeing... I, I'm like 
now I'm bracing myself for the return of skinny jeans. I feel like we need to be on skinny jean watch because who thought that they would be coming back? I know. I'm, I'm, into I'm it. not ready. I'm, I'm not, not ready. I'm never going back. I think what I loved about the collection as well is that it felt like a coming of age story for people in their late 20s and early 30s right. when like you have a bit more disposable, I mean, a bit more disposable <laughs> income. So you, you can kind of check out on Vestia. You can start buying that beautiful coat that yeah. you've been lusting over for ages and you'll wear it in to a party. Yeah. You'll wear yeah. it to go to the corner shop. It's very kind of like you treat it with so much respect, but also a reverence. Yeah. And that's what makes it feel really cool. Yeah. yeah. He described yeah. it as like a bottle of Prosecco with a spoon in it. So good. <laughs> had, had one of those in my fridge before. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, any other favourite shows? My personal favourite, I guess, on the schedule is someone who didn't do a show, oh. which is Talia Bayer. Right. She's a fabulous designer, also a St. Martin's graduate. Um, this season, she opted for a static presentation in a studio mm. in Hackney. And she's, for someone who's just quite a young designer perhaps I think she's really honed in a specific aesthetic without compromising or following trends or fitting into a, a box and when you speak to her she's she really gets it mm. and the way and the way she her hand with her fabrics it's it's peculiar but it's refined and you've said, and you say I, you think I would really love these clothes. Like, tell me about them. She's got a great <laughs> eye for color, okay, and yeah. a great okay, eye for, for, for mixing and matching prints. It's I very zingy, spirit yeah. raising. Like, it's got that offbeat eccentricity, right. where you know she'll she'll pair like a pony hair cow print with like a you know zigzaggy kind of like stripy skirt with like a zip around the hem, or you know she'll she'll do like hound's tooth. On top of hounds tooth tights. Mm. Oh, I need to check. I need to check her out. Yeah, definitely. It's one of the first shows that really kind of like wowed me at the beginning of the week was Talu Koka. Really good. Yes. Um, I hadn't been to any of her shows before. I know she was actually on the she was on the January cover of, mm. of mm. Vogue with a trio of designers. She had this street hawker set up on on the runway so the set was incredible mm. and there was this monologue in the beginning where this woman was talking about that street hawker culture in in Ghana and um it was just uh it was a really fun set up to see and you know from the from the get go and then you saw this amazing tailoring and it's so interesting to see a young designer sort of double down on these very tailored pieces you know and I thought it felt very youthful but still had that kind of like rigor to it that mm. I was quite surprised by she's been around for a minute this is her second collection on the schedule right we were actually in the same year at CSM oh were you yeah oh, okay um, and she tends to reference her roots is she of Nigerian origin yeah right I left that show feeling so full Happy. of joy. Yeah. yeah, it was so uplifting. I mean, when she came out, I was like yeah. so proud of her. Yeah. But also, because they were—I mean, the models also were. The casting was amazing, yeah. and then they all kind of broke out into into this dance yeah. at the end of the show, and it just felt like you wanted to get up and join them. Yeah. The music was infectious. The atmosphere was yeah. great. The set was incredible. You could almost tell that the show was going to be really good from the minute you walked into that venue. There was mm. just something in the air. It felt really exciting. And I think that's because she had obviously so many of like her own like community there. But mm. it just felt good. You, yeah. like, you could tell this was going to be a moment. And I love that when that happens. 
You felt in such safe hands. Yeah. I mean, when you think about J.W. Anderson, I mean, his show is kind of the big ticket of the week. Yeah, Um, Choma, you were there. Can you tell us about it? I was (laughs) there. I was there. I mean, first of all, it was in this really amazing venue, a light-filled space. Seymour Leisure Centre. Seymour Leisure Centre. And then obviously, like, the the front row was major. And Mm. he brings together such an interesting crowd. And you'll see, like, like Zadie Smith floating around. And you'll have all these, like, young, amazing actors as well in the room so he brings together such an amazing crowd so the atmosphere when you get there feels quite like you're excited to be there and then I think he always kind of people were talking a lot about the granny panties (laughs) and the and uh the wigs and um I always love hearing he's always thinking about fashion through the lens of culture and yes this idea of nostalgia and like what Mm, does that mean mm. do we have an idea of nostalgia that actually isn't representative of the past. What I loved about that collection as well is that um, it was inspired by like 70, 1970s blouses from Marks and Spencer. Yeah, so you'll have to yes. explain to everyone what Marks and Spencer's in because it's a, a, a real British institution. It is. And it's, I'm not sure if there's a American equivalent. It's a supermarket, but it's also like a clothing brand and then <laughs> yeah, interiors. Yeah, but it's it's kind Everybody of Everybody buys their knickers from Marks and Spencer. I feel really like every is. It's such like a cornerstone <laughs> of the high street. The other kind of mega show of the week was Burberry and mm. it was quite I mean I I hadn't actually been to a Daniel Lee for Burberry show before. Um, and it was in this huge tent um, in Victoria Park. And he's done a series of shows in parks. Mm. And walking in, I mean, it was like a who's who of like British fashion and music. Mm. Like I was like sandwiched between like Skepta and Benji B and Amazing. Little Sims was on, on you know, um, to my left. And then you had this row of of models who had appeared in, in past campaigns, like Cara Delevingne was there and... Um, Agnes Dean. Agnes Dean opened mm, the show. Yeah. That's so good. And then Phoebe Philo's daughter, Maya Wigram, closed the show. And, you know, obviously autumn, winter is the moment for Burberry, right? Because you, mm-hmm. you're looking for the outerwear and the outerwear was so major. But it did make me think, oh my God, that early aughts, you know, um, Camden girl mm. is making her way back into I think fashion. So for sure. yeah. I mean, Agnes, yeah, Agnes Dean, skinny jeans. I mean, it just feels, it felt so, so right for that. Is there anything that you didn't see that you'd like to see more of or that didn't, wasn't on the runway? I guess it was quite dark this season. Right. There were some exciting color palettes, but I guess everyone's still kind of sticking to that minimalist, muted. I mean, we say this every season, but I think, feel this like, this was really the death of Y2K. There was mm. I didn't see any of it really, no. and I'm all the happier for it. Yeah, you know, no, it's just time felt... to move on. There was a lot of like minimalist paired black, black, all black, look black. Yeah, yeah, which for me is a tough, mm. tough proposition. But then on the other hand, you have people like Delara Findigotlu who t- tell us about Delara. I mean, Delara is a designer in London who skipped last season. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was quite honest about why she didn't have the funds to do it. So she mm-hmm. actually pulled out of the show, I think, about three days before. And she has such like a devoted following online. She's really like mm. a kind of high fashion Twitter favourite. Mm. She like uh, is a kind of descendant of McQueen and Galliana. Mm. She loves the kind of bone crunching corsets and these like madams spilling out of their clothes. It's very, very poetic. She did her show, Night Jawara, in a church. 
Um, and it Juara Alain, who deserves a definite shout out. Yeah, yes. amazing. And it was uh, movement directed by Pat, who also did the last, the last Margiela Couture collection. Oh, wow. So it, it felt very kind of evocative of that kind mm. of come with me, enter into my world for a bit. It's dark. Mm. There's like techno music blaring out Whoa. and the models are sauntering and kind of staggering around this syphilitic kind of like glamour Whoa. it's it's it was like quite something and i love that because you know again a designer with less budget than a massive parisian fashion house yeah but is still trying to bring people into their world and i feel like there were little moments of that elsewhere mm. it did feel like the, the maybe the, that that margella couture show has is influencing the way that people are yeah. there was a little bit more of the sense of like fashion as performance and sure. theater and this idea of like you said creating a world yeah, yeah i think every single designer i interviewed this season in some way mentioned that Margiela wow. show. I think wow. it, it really kind of... Struck a nerve. Yeah, yeah, I think it also made people like, well, yes, this is Wake what up, fashion yeah, should be. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. we, went to, we went to church for Jawara LA and he yes. showed in the St. Mary the Strand, right? Yes, and worth mentioning, yeah. Jawara is incredible. Yeah. Um, so Jawara is a Kamanian Jamaican designer and this collection, he dedicated the show to the experience of growing up on an island mm. where you know, any, like, natural disasters can hit at any point. Right. And one of the safe spaces that, you know, you and your family can go to are, uh, you know, either a school or a church. And that's why he chose to show at a church. Wow. And each piece sort of, sort of em like, embodied that feeling of having to grab whatever you can in that moment and rushing to put it on. And so there was lots of twists and, mm. you know, there the were The draping was gorgeous. The draping was gorgeous. I mean, his signature safety pin details, mm. I love. Yeah, I have a few of his shirts and I just, they're so collectible and I definitely want some of the more twisted yeah. versions. He basically has these cutouts and 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 um, uses safety pins around like to create these shapes within within his shirts. Yeah. It's very simple, but it's really clever. It's so clever. I mean, this season, I think he pushed it a little bit further, like from, because typically he uses jersey, which is right. which is obviously very effective for draping. But this mm. season he went for harder fabrications. Mm. So everything was a little more structural. There would be like knots that felt like they were hand scrunched, but mm. held in place, obviously. Um, yeah, it was just very architectural. Maybe Choma, you can tell us a little bit about Simone because we weren't there. Oh my gosh, yeah. how did we not talk about Simone? Yeah. yeah. Simone Rocha, whose show was incredible. Um, she sh also showed in a church in St. Bartholomew's. Simone worked on both collections of both her, her couture collection for Jean-Paul Gaultier and this collection at the same time. And you really saw that, that the influences of of Jean-Paul Gaultier's archive on her current collection. There was this very gentle kind of emphasis on the waist and she had a pink coat that was like nipped in the waist with all this lacing along the body, which that was, in, that was incredible. And I thought it was a really beautiful collection. And I hope that lots of people wear it on the red carpet. Well, thank you so much for the chat. I feel like I've got my whole cheat sheet for London Fashion Week sorted and a few predictions for the future. Well, it's always so such a pleasure. Thanks, Choma. Thank you. Thank you. Yay. 
The run through will be back in just a moment. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious. And this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency, we're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Maybe a chef-grade range made you want to hone your cooking skills, or a high-tech tennis racket made you want to work on your backhand. I recently bought a new pair of running shoes, and that made me love hitting the pavement again. Well, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This podcast is supported by Macy's. Mother's Day is May 12th, and Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for mom easy this year. Shop by price, 25 and under to 100 and under. Category, like fragrances and handbags. Or gift lists, like for the mom who has everything or for grandma. Macy's has all the hottest gift ideas, like Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, Samsung smart TVs, and more. Go to macy's.com slash gift finder to shop. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder today. And we're back. So there is a new documentary out on Mubi on March 8th called High and Low about the life and career of John Galliano. It's directed by Kevin McDonald and was produced by Condé Nast. Um, our colleague Mark Waducci was a consulting producer on it, but we're very excited to chat about it today. Of course, Galliano is one of the most visionary designers of our generation. He grew up in South London and attended the prestigious Central St. Martin School, and he showed his first collection in 1984. After that, the rest was really history. He went on to design for his own brand and also at the helm of Givenchy and Dior. As one of the world's top fashion designers, John Galliano is used to the glare of photographers' flashbulbs. But the flamboyancy which has made him a household name was nowhere to be seen as he arrived at a Paris police station for questioning over claims of anti-Semitism. He's accused of making several remarks too offensive to repeat. In 2011, really at the height of his career, John was videotaped making racist remarks on two different occasions. And this really was a low point for him. He was struggling with addiction. And following the incident, he really retreated from the public eye. 
What I think is so interesting about the documentary is that it faces this head on and really addresses quite a difficult question, which is how do you reconcile someone whose work you deeply respect and in the case of Galliano, revere from many fashion insiders' perspectives, but don't condone the behavior of that artist. Um, it, it also considers whether there's a possibility for redemption when people do unforgivable things. Yeah, and I think I think that was on a lot of people's mind when he made his re-entry into the fashion conversation when he was appointed creative director at Margiela. Four years after he was banned from the Paris fashion scene, John Galliano has made a comeback with Maison Martin Margiela. And I think most recently, you know, he's shown just how creative and visionary he can be with, with that couture collection that literally rocked the fashion world. It really did. Joining us today, Hamish Bowles, editor-in-chief of the World of Interiors and global editor-at-large at Vogue. He's a longtime friend of John's. Chloe and I have both known him for many years. He suffered a stroke recently, so this conversation has been edited for brevity. Yes, it was such a treat for both of us to catch up with Hamish because, as many people know, there is absolutely no greater encyclopedia. Honestly, I just say Hamish is an encyclopedia of all things beautiful. Design, fashion, history. He just knows everything and has such a spectacular point of view and take on the world. And so to hear from him, who has known John, as we learned, for 40 years, uh, was really such a treat. Yeah, and we're so happy to see that he's recovering. Yes. Also joining us today is Kevin McDonald, the director of this documentary. Well, I have to say I was just riveted watching the film because I didn't know a lot about John's early career. But Kevin, I was so curious about what inspired you to take this project on? Because I know that the last film you made was on Guantanamo, so this is a slightly different subject track. Um, <laughs> a little bit of a, a, a kind of diversion. A pivot, uh, one might say. <laughs> a pivot, that's a good word. Yeah, no, I um, I was fascinated by John as a character. I know nothing about fashion. And well, I knew nothing about fashion. I now know a very small slice <laughs> about fashion in 80s Britain and 90s France. But I, I don't know very much about fashion. But I like making films, particularly documentaries, which take me into a world that I know nothing about and that I can be educated in and learn to appreciate. And I, I had probably a pretty superficial and maybe slightly dismissive view of fashion and the world. And so it's interesting to to, to have those expectations challenged, actually, and to sort of try to understand why so many people are in love with this this craft. And John seemed to me to be, to have a human story that was just very fascinating and very much of our moment, because it's a story about people who have broken taboos and been cancelled, if we use that term, and who have sought forgiveness and tried to have a have a second act to their lives. And how much do you feel like you knew about John before the documentary? And how how did your opinion of him evolve as you got to know him? I knew very very little about him before before doing the film. I you know I'm not that much younger than him. I'm 56, and and so I remember that he was this enfant terrible in the 80s in fashion. I remember that he. You know, kept winning the British Design Award and and then going bankrupt every time he won it, and that was the sort of <laughs> mythology around him that he was considered to be this great genius who'd gone to 
France being the first British designer for a hundred years to head a couture house. The House of George is like the Arc de Triomphe. The idea of the shape, um, the tiny waist, uh, and the padded hips. Femininity, the romance, um, has greatly inspired by flowers, his mother. Um, very rounded shoulders, very feminine. When Mr. Joe created the new look, he said... And um, but he, I knew that he had had this reputation for being beastly to people sometimes and flamboyant and, and you know, grandiose. And all that sort of mythology followed him. And all of a sudden, fashion was like rock and roll. They were brilliant designers, but John was the best of his generation. And then, of course, I knew about the, the, the instance at the Bar La Pearl, which led to his, his downfall. So that, those are basically what I've said to you is pretty much all I knew. One of the things I really appreciated about working with him on this was that he was so he tried so hard to be honest. He was just trying to be himself and trying to piece together his life for me in these interviews. And we did about, I'd say, 25 or 30 hours of interviews wow. over the course of yeah, 10 days or so. So, yeah, I spent, a, I spent a lot of time with him, felt I got to know him quite well and came to not only like him as a person, but also to really appreciate what he does, which is quite something for someone who, who started this not knowing anything about fashion. Hamish, I didn't realize how far back you and John go. I thought you'd known each other for maybe 20 years, but not since you were children. I know. It's unbelievable. Wow. Can you tell us, set the scene for your first meeting? Yes. I was at, on my foundation course at St. Martin's, which was then, is still the sort of leading fashion school. And there was a lot of buzz about this character in the fashion course at St. Martin's. And then when I stayed at St. Martin's to do the fashion course, I was again sort of submerged with tales of this character. And it was funny because one of my great friends at St. Martin's, um, we were two years below John Galliano, so he was a great big grown-up. One of my friends was John Flett, who was very precocious in lots of ways. Within several weeks, he decided that John Galliano was going to be his boyfriend. (laughs) If you can imagine, this was quite something for this guy who was two years below him. Um, (laughs) But sure enough, they became boyfriends. So that was my introduction to John Galliano. Did did you have a feeling that he was, um, that John was going to be something special? I mean, did you you feel that he was going to be, and you knew it straight away? We knew it. Um, He was absolutely a star. Yes. You know, out of so many other people, he was, he's the only one who remember, remembers. And everyone was rooting for him, really. Mm. And Kevin, I know John had obviously this really stratospheric rise. Um, he, you know, struggled with with addiction and, and, and said some quite 
hateful things. You know, there's a remarkable moment in the documentary where you talk to John about this and it becomes apparent that he doesn't remember some of those comments. There were these two separate incidents separated by, I don't know, a couple of weeks or something, was it? Do you remember that? Two separate incidents. That sort of, that, weren't there two separate incidents? It was just one incident at Rudla Pal. Remind me, Alexi, did you hear that? Where? No, it's two different incidents. Oh, I thought the video was of that night. No. But the incident's the same, wasn't it? No. So you're right. Um, Can you talk to us about what it was like filming that? Yeah, I mean, I think these things happen in front of the camera, like that moment where he, he clearly doesn't remember the sort of crucial elements of, it, of, it, of his life and the things that were turning points in his life. And you have no recollection of that day. I mean, we piece bits and pieces together from what I've... I heard. And you are left to ask, why is that? I think some people have said to me, oh, you know, he's pretending he doesn't remember. I, don't think, I think that's nonsense. I, 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 he would have to be very naive to think you know, he could get away with pretending. I think that it's more likely that it's so painful to him, those, that, that, that era of his life when he was pretty much... I think killing himself through through his addictions. I think to go back and to remember that period and everything that happened is really difficult for him. And so he's built up a narrative, as we all do, about our lives. You know, that, to make it sort of a, a, an easy and it, there's an easy line he can just give as you know, this is what happened, this is what I went through, don't, and then don't ask any more questions. So I think, yeah, that's that was my interpretation of of that, but also. He was a blackout drinker, you know, and he spent a lot of that period, you know, a, a pivotal relationship in the um, in the film is between him and his uh, assistant, Stephen, who died under pretty unhappy circumstances and who John had really been so close to and relied upon. And I think when Stephen died, things went spun out of control for, for John. I don't think he could cope on on his own, you know, it was such tight, creative partnership that he had with with Stephen. Hamish, I'm curious how, when all of that happened in 2011, how did you reconcile what John said and with the John that you knew for so long and so well? Well, I think I'd grown detached from John over the years. When, with his life at Dior, he was, his work so consumed him that he had to be surrounded by just the people that were doing the work. So I think he cut off from older friends and I sort of felt that in a way, you know, he was this godlike creature, Dior. I just felt that we'd grown very detached. So when I heard about that, I was very saddened because I just thought he's in a in a dark world and he's not himself. I think one of the interesting things that somebody says in the in the film about that is the addiction specialist, addiction psychologist who we talked to who who, who treated John said that in a way what happened was a form of social suicide. It's a way to stop everything in his life and kind of to force yourself to hit rock bottom that was his sort of psychiatrist's interpretation of this and i think 
one of the things about telling John's story and just the structure of this story, it's the kind of story a bit like Amy Winehouse or Whitney Houston or one of these other stars, great stars who've had a huge talent and you, you, their story is told in three acts. You know, it's the rise, it's the success, and then it's the tragic fall. John has those three acts, but then he also has a fourth act. And that's really unusual. His fourth act is now, his fourth act is trying to put his life back together again and and reinventing himself as a person, but as a designer and as an artist. And I think that's actually what makes it, it makes the film unusual for those who are used to seeing these kind of rise and fall narratives. This is very different because it's somebody who sort of wakes up the next day and in a way they should be dead, as John himself will say, you know, I, I should have died. But he wakes up and then he has to deal with the fallout of everything that's happened and put himself back together again, which makes it a much more psychologically complex and interesting tale, mm. I think, than, than than the normal rise and fall narrative. I loved how you really addressed this in such a complex and multi-layered way. I, I was quite moved by the interview with the man who John said these very hateful things to and how he seemed it seemed very present for him and quite there still. And I wondered what it was like to film that and if John has spoken to him since. Did you sort of broker any pieces or truces? It just it, it felt like an ongoing um, conflict for, for some of the people in the film. Well, yes, the, the, this is a, a man called Philippe who was one of the two people present on the, on the night at the bar where the whole incident went down. And he... I think it's fair to say he's quite a vulnerable person. And the incident and the publicity, particularly the publicity around it and the sort of stress of being in this big celebrity trial, I think really it changed his life and affected him really profoundly. Disgraced fashion designer John Galliano's in court today facing charges of anti-Semitic behaviour. He faces a potential six-month prison sentence and a €22,000 fine if found guilty. And you can see that on camera. I think that's why I, I also find that that interview very moving because here's somebody who clearly is not in a psychologically good place, put it like that, and who has a lot of unresolved feelings. I think those feelings are not so much about you know what happened that night as they are about his own thoughts about how he behaved at the trial, about how people, the press tried to track him down and all the pressure he had to he had to face because of that and i think that you know john certainly when i showed him that interview i showed him that part was really regretful and very you know expressed his sense of pity for the man but he never said oh i want to go and see him or i want to i want to try to make this right i think maybe because he felt like i i already apologized to him We've been through this. It's in the past. I want it to remain in the past. I think sometimes in a film, everything is made to seem much more intense and much more present than maybe it, it, it feels for John. I think that he, he, as I say, I think he feels that this is is in the past and should be put to bed. But I don't think for Philippe it feels like that. Hey, I'm Molly Sims. And I'm Emma Shagormley. We are two best friends with one common obsession. Beauty. And by that, we mean everything that makes you look and feel beautiful. We tried it all and we've got your back. We'll be calling on all our favorite health experts, industry insiders, and friends to answer all your beauty questions. Consider us your beauty 411. And sometimes your 911. From how to fix brassy hair to the pros and cons of laser facials. And always with a cocktail in hand. Always. 
So be prepared to be obsessed. Check out Lipstick on the Rim wherever you get your podcasts. Hamish, I wanted to ask you about the recent Margiela show because it's so... It's actually quite interesting that at the time that this documentary is coming out and we're talking about, you know, John's incredible life and career, uh, he's having this big moment in fashion. Like It felt like everybody was talking about that couture show. What was it like to be there? Um, you know, that, that show went viral. There were people who, who I know who, who aren't interested in fashion who were asking me about this, this show, and it felt like a real gear shift in fashion where we've had this very kind of like back to reality feeling but this was like drama and the runway as theater again and emotion and emotion yeah what was it what was it like to be there well it was very emotional i mean for a start it was very difficult to, get, to actually physically get there for me <laughs> it was like had this stroke and you know we have to we had to go down the steps leading to the seine and it was a night time and the in rain, and so I was clinging on for dear life <laughs> to get there down the steps. Anyway, when we were there, we had an hour's wait. Um, an hour's wait? Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that part. <laughs> an hour's wait. But it was quite a lot distraction because the the interior of what what he'd done, he did it in the. His rooms had been carved out at the um, Seine, just where the, this rather magnificent Art Nouveau bridge was constructed, and a part of that just by the Seine. And we got the film, which was this sort of fairy tale film, and then the film collided with real life because the actual people started appearing. And the first person was the... Uh, this singer who sang this haunting song with the backup singers. And it set the scene for the show, which was really, it took me back to John's earliest collections, you know, the Incroyable Show, the Afghanistan repudiates Western ideals, <laughs> the ludic game. Um <gasps> all these shows with characters in them. And it was just a sort of spine-tingling moment, really. At the end of it, with Gwendolyn, Gwendolyn Christie, she just had this spirit with her. And I was just sort of stunned, really. Um, it was the last show of the week. It was at 8 o'clock at night on a rainy night in Paris and it just made one realize what the couture could be now. Mm. I was rather emotional at the end of it and I looked around and everyone was emotional. All these young people, my table, Francesca Hayward and Kate Moss's daughter were just speechless, you know. They, they of course, are too young to have remembered the Dior shows. Mm. Galliano, can you imagine? So, <laughs> um, I didn't like to say there was shows 40 years ago. <laughs> um, but I think it really brought back 
what strength as a designer he has. A moving show, really. Can I ask you, what did, why do you think this latest show, John's, has struck such a chord? And as you say, it's become viral as two people's central in fashion. What, what do you think it is? And does it, is it a harbinger of things to come? Is it, is it a, a pivot moment? It definitely, it definitely feels that way. I think we come through a moment where fashion was very much about being back to reality and about the clothes and this idea of drama and theatre and fantasy had kind of taken a back seat in fashion. And I think you just felt, you know, the entire fashion community levitate a little bit. You know, there was this brief moment of just wonder and uh, um, awe. It was a childlike awe. It was a childlike awe. It was that moment that you fall in love with, like, fashion, right? I mean, I will say I was quite struck in the documentary that um, John would ask after every collection, did the editors have a tear in their eye? Did Polly cry? And to think about that today, I mean, it's just a completely foreign idea that people would be moved to tears at a show. And this Margiela show was that. It really moved people. And there's something exciting about that. And and even just, you know, as one of the more fun parts of my job is to watch the traffic on the website. <laughs> and it's always sort of a celebrity style post or I take a t- tablespoon of apple cider vinegar in the morning. <laughs> and guess what? A fashion show like Margiela to be at the top of mm. the traffic of the website, that people were reading the review, looking at all the images, it's, it's quite exciting and inspiring. And it, to me, it confirms that he is such a, a genius, and it's true. He's this is a fourth act for him. Mm. And I am curious with from both of you, what is the experience with John and making this film about him? What has it made you think about when you revere the work of an artist, but the artist does something horrible or that you don't agree with? Are you able to separate the art from the artist? I think, I, I hope the answer is yes, especially after what we've just been talking about this past show. Well, I think the last word in my documentary, or pretty much the last word, is, is given to a great critic, Robin Given, from the Washington Post. If you believe that he should be able to move on and believe in giving him another chance, you also still can't feel deeply for what he said. It's possible to hold these two conflicting thoughts in your mind at the same time. You can't dictate for how how people are going to respond to something that someone has done or said, and you can't dictate to them whether or not they should forgive or not. But you can, I think, say to them, okay, even if you can't forgive, you can recognize the complexity of a situation where somebody is a genius and is adding something to the culture. I agree. And I hope a lot of people watch this documentary. I know, because I do it too. Was so it's, it's, you learn so much about a lot of things, but moral ambiguity is one of them. <laughs> well, I hope that also that, that we've talked a lot about that particular aspect of John's life, obviously, but, you know, half of the film at least is is about the fashion and about John's life and how he sort of, the influences that took him to where he he went in fashion or where he's going in fashion. So I think it's a kind of two for the price of one film. You get you get to learn about a great desire and you also get to ask some complex moral questions. 
Fantastic. Well, it's such a joy and a treat to speak to both of you. Um, yeah, thank you both so much for, for this conversation. That's great. Well, thank you. Hamish, I'm so, so happy to see you. Yes. You're looking oh, wonderful. You, absolutely. Bye. Bye, Hamish. Lovely to see you. Oh, bye. bye Thank you. That's it for today's episode. See you next week. Bye. Bye. The Run-Through with Vogue is a production of Condé Nast. The show is produced by Susie Lechtenberg, Chelsea Daniel, and Alex John Burns, with engineering from Jake Loomis, Gabe Kiroga, and James Yost. It is mixed by Mike Kutchman. Chris Bannon is Condé Nast's head of global audio. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp.com.